0: behaviorology, to assist the criminal and civil justice systems, to improve our society, a podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. Hello, it's great to hear from you again. I hope you appreciate hearing from me. I have uh, had some good news in that um, many people now have signed up for the upcoming uh, webinar on novel uses of ABA. This is going to be, so if you're hearing this before July 30th, 2020, you probably still have time to sign up and join the webinar. It's free, Uh, however, if you need uh, continuing education, units uh, there is a small fee for that but if you just want to listen it's free of charge so I'll leave the uh, link for that at the bottom of the show highlights I'm gonna get right to the podcast topic today and it is from an article in a magazine called the forensic examiner summer of 2009 When Worlds Collide, Criminal Investigative Analysis, Forensic Psychology, and The Timothy Masters Case. And the authors are Frank S. Perry, JD, MBA, CPA. Mr. Perry is a member and lead author of this research project, has worked as a prosecutor and defense attorney in the criminal law field. For over 12 years. Areas of concentration include violent white-collar crimes. Mr. Perry received his Juris Doctor from the University of Illinois, his Master's in Business Administration from Case Western Reserve University. Uh, in addition, Mr. Perry is a Licensed Certified Public Accountant. And also, Terrence G. Lichtenwald, PhD, a Life Fellow and Diplomate in the uh, ACFEI. He earned his doctorate in clinical psychology from an American Psychological Association approved program and completed the APA approved internship. He has a master's degree in clinical psychology and a second master's in school psychology. Dr. Lichtenwall has spent 20 years completing forensic, behavioral, psychological, and security evaluations as well as threat assessments. Scholarship interests include fraud de- detection, homicide, the application of the development of the developmental smuggling model, white collar crime, and security threat assessments. So, those two authors put together this very interesting piece of work. Apparently, uh, uh, it was a CE article in its time and they had uh, specific objectives for it but i found the the subject very interesting and timely even today even though this was from 11 years ago because it has to do with criminal investigative analysis who's qualified to do it and what makes a good uh, criminal investigative analysis let's go to the article It is not uncommon for laypersons to erroneously believe that criminal investigative analysis, commonly referred to as, quote, criminal profiling, unquote, is synonymous with forensic psychology, especially with the rise in popularity of television programs on profiling and incorporate psychological concepts. Further confusion may occur because practitioners in both fields read the same research, interview the same, same criminals attend the same seminars, develop professional relationships, and cite one another's scholarship. However, what happens when forensic psychologists advance opinions about criminal matters based on the extrapolation of academic research on psychological concepts involving sexual homicide cases and reject the opinions of professional criminal profilers who incorporate law enforcement analysis coupled with criminal evidentiary considerations into their work. This paper offers an analysis of the series of events that occurred when a homicide detective contacted an international expert in forensic psychology to assist in the arrest process and the prosecution of a targeted sexual homicide suspect. The forensic psychologist developed a psychological profile of a killer using narratives and drawings made by the suspect to conclude that the suspect's fantasy was the motive and behavioral preparation for the sexual murder, regardless of the fact that the forensic psychologist knew that there was no direct or physical evidence linking the suspect to the crime. In this article, the authors examine the case of Timothy Masters, who was arrested and convicted of sexual murder based on the testimony of a forensic psychologist well, the opinion of a criminal investigative analysis analyst was ignored. Timothy Masters, who spent over nine years in a Colorado prison for the murder of Peggy Hetrick, H-E-T-T-R-I-C-K, was released on January 22, 2008. Shortly thereafter, all homicide charges were dropped based on new DNA evidence pointing to other suspects. Masters, who always maintained his innocence, was convicted largely on the testimony of forensic psychologist Dr. Reed Malloy. His violent sketches and stories produced when he was an adolescent were used as evidence to arrest and convict him in 1999 of killing Peggy Hetrick in 1987, a conviction that was upheld by the Colorado Court of Appeals and the Colorado Supreme Court. Masters' prosecution raises troubling questions primarily because it pivoted on the controversial opinions of a board certified forensic psychologist who analyzed Timothy's sketches and concluded the drawings reflected specific personality traits, a motive, and behavioral preparation to commit sexual homicide. Masters was convicted without a single shred of direct evidence, such as a confession or physical evidence such as DNA, and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. In this article, the authors review the sexual homicide investigation leading to the arrest of Timothy Masters, analyzed the reasoning of the forensic psychologist's theories used to justify the prosecution, including former FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood's analysis of the sexual homicide that was never revealed to the defense and provide an analysis of the legal implications of the case, together with recommendations for forensic psychological practitioners. The Sexual Homicide Investigation In 1987, 15-year-old high school sophomore Timothy Masters lived with his father in Fort Collins, Colorado, a university town on the plains east of Rocky Mountains on February 11, 1987, the murdered body of Peggy Hetrick was found in a field not far from his residence. Hetrick's private areas were mutilated with surgical precision. Her killer removed, uh, he goes on to rather gruesome details about uh, what had happened to her, which I won't read. She was stabbed in the lower back, causing a rib to break, and then dragged into a field as evidenced by the drag marks in the soil. The body has been partially disrobed and positioned on its back with the legs slightly apart and arms over the head, exposing the right breast and pubic area. After the delivery of the fatal wound, a bloody trail indicated that the perpetrator dragged the victim's body 103 feet into the field where it was found. According to law enforcement, Timothy Masters was an early suspect because he saw the body on the way to school but failed to report it Without consulting an attorney, he and his dad allowed detectives to search their home and Tim's school locker where the police retrieved his writing, sketches, and survival knife collection. Timothy's school locker contained a hand-drawn map of what appeared to be the field where Hedrick's body was found and a sketch of a person dragging a body. In his backpack were two Mother's Day cards he had made years before while his mother was still alive. The detectives also found a calendar with a date circled reflecting the date that Timothy's mother died four years earlier. Peggy Hetrick had been murdered one day shy of the February 12th anniversary of the death of Timothy's mother. Detective Francis Gonzalez found Masters at school, and Masters told him he had seen Hetrick's body but assumed it was a mannequin Put in the field by his friends in an attempt to trick him. Indeed, even the bicyclist who reported the body told police he too thought it was a mannequin. The detectives also found what became the most prejudicial of the prosecution's evidence a decade later, when Masters was put on trial for Hetrick's murder. Hundreds of extremely violent drawings and stories in his bedroom. Many of the pictures showed stabbings with knives and swords, much of the violence was directed at women. A sketch that would be particularly damning showed a figure that had been shot with arrows being dragged by another figure in the same manner police believe Hetrick's killer dragged her. While Master's volume of drawings raised questions, they did not trigger his arrest because the bedroom and its context were equally Contents were equally notable for what officers did not find. Officers found no blood and no body parts anywhere in the house. There was no fiber, hair, skin, fingerprints, or other physical evidence that linked Masters to Hetrick or eyewitnesses. The survival knives were tested at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and found to have no trace of the victim's blood or DNA. There were footprints but he lived next to the field and walked through it every day so his footprints would be present. The police also found a suitcase containing pornographic photographs and a large number of writings and drawings that Masters had produced. Additional sets of drawings and writings were seized by the police in 1998 when the defendant was arrested. In all, police seized approximately 2,200 pages of material produced by Masters, over a 1,000 of which were admitted at trial. Drawings by Timothy Masters during his adolescent years. During the interrogation, Timothy's father sat outside the interview room. After reading Timothy, his Miranda rights officers prodded him to talk about killing, to think like a killer, to talk about what weapons he might use and where he might put a body. Yet Timothy did not confess. By the sixth hour, it was Detective Jim Broderick's turn to tell Timothy to come clean about how he fulfilled a fantasy by killing Hetrick. Why can't you just say it? Why is it so hard for you to tell me? You got to admit when it's over. People get killed in battle, right? Their friends die. A piece in you just died. Just a minute ago. It's over. You're not free anymore, unquote. Timothy was interrogated for more than 10 hours without a lawyer. According to Broderick, Timothy failed a lie detector test, but the official report of the test results are lost. At age 15, Timothy Masters was not arrested. After high school, he joined the Navy. In 1992, Detective Linda Wheeler Holloway thought she had a break on the case when one of Masters' friends said that Masters had told him Hetrick's nipple was missing. Quote, that's it. That's hold back information that only the cops knew. Unquote. Wheeler Holloway and Detective Broderick interviewed Masters for two days while he was still in the Navy in what was called a tag team interrogation. Timothy had known about the nipple, but a girl in his art class had told him about it. Detectives checked out the story and it turned out to be true. Broderick kept battering Masters with questions and at one point forced him to break down in tears. The interviews were also witnessed by members of Naval Intelligence and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. A Naval Intelligence officer asked her, You sure you got the right guy? I don't know, Wheeler Holloway replied. Wheeler Holloway, however, was impressed that Masters disclosed the same story he had five years earlier, that he did not report Hetrick's body because he thought it was a mannequin prank. And his stories and drawings stem from his ambition to write horror stories like Stephen King. According to court records, Wheeler Holloway later wrote in a police report, the FBI agents here believe Tim Masters is innocent and so do I, unquote. Troubled by a seeming reluctance by the police department to pursue other suspects and to have the FBI perform a profile at her request, Wheeler Holloway filed the case as cold and later left the department for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Even Detective Troy Krenning believed it improbable that a boy could have pulled off such a sophisticated, fetishistic killing. On the first anniversary of Hetrick's death, Krenning was instructed to sit in a mobile home opposite Masters' house to perform surveillance of the crime scene in case the killer came back. Krenning stated, however, My perspective was to get off Masters and take a look at maybe someone else. We seem to be focused on one. Krenning recalled pressing his colleagues for evidence proving that Masters was a legitimate suspect and his colleagues challenged his position by stating, Prove that Masters did not commit the crime. Okay. Kroeninger replied that his colleague's investigation, investigatory strategy was the exact opposite of how an investigation unfolds. Yet even with numerous law enforcement colleagues in his own department and the FBI not convinced that Timothy had anything to do with the murder, Detective Broderick was not satisfied with the belief that Timothy was innocent. Broderick, said a search at master's bedroom, school, locker, and backpack revealed numerous drawings and narratives suggesting the teen was fixated on death and violence. Broderick felt the artwork and stories fit the axiom that sexual homicide suspects generally fantasize about what they're going to do before they do it. In essence, the fantasy is a template for the murder they actually commit. I'm seeing some of the drawings here. They are um quite gruesome. I've I've seen those kind of things of teenagers drawing this kind of stuff before, so I'm not sure what to make of that. Undisclosed evidence. By the time the case went to trial in nineteen ninety nine there were investigative and prosecutorial issues that related to exculpatory evidence that could be used to show that the alleged defendant was not the culprit, but that was not revealed to the defense. For example, prosecutors never told defense attorneys about a sex offender and surgeon living near the field and close to Timothy's residence where Hetrick's body was found. Police initially considered eye surgeon Dr. Richard Hammond as, at the very least, a person of interest in 1987. Person of interest, okay? In 1995, police confiscated more than 300 homemade videos and over $10,000 worth of pornography when a house sitter found a hidden camera positioned in Hammond's bathroom where women's private areas were videotaped. Other cameras were found in the guest bedroom. After bonding out of jail, Hammond checked himself into the Master Mountain Crest Hospital in Fort Collins for counseling where he talked little but revealed on paper an unhappy life, lonely childhood, and voyeuristic tendencies since his teen years. In addition, plastic surgeon Christopher Soy, T-S-O-I, revealed to police investigator Marsha Reed in early 1998 his belief that Hetrick's genital wounds reflected the proficiency of a surgeon. Though police released a report showing that Reed set up an appointment with Soy Soy, no report detailed their conversation has ever been released. In addition, during the autopsy of 1987 murder victim Peggy Hetrick, the medical examiner remarked, a doctor could have done this. Coroner Dr. Patrick Allen's surprise at the surgical precision of her wounds was only recently recounted in an interview with Masters Defense Team and fits the defense contention that a 50-year-old A 15-year-old could not have pulled off such a sophisticated slaying. Dr. Allen later found the most puzzling wounds unnoticed by officers. They were, quote, neatly, unquote, executed cuts inside her genitalia that, that, like the one on her left breast, must have been made with an extremely sharp knife, an instrument different from the one used to stab her. In twenty one years of performing odd tips, Allen told colleagues he had never seen wounds like these. Broderick later, Broderick stated that he never talked to Allen about whether someone with surgical skill must have inflicted Hedrick's wounds. Quote, I can assume, you, I can assure you, if Dr. Allen's findings was that only a surgeon could have made those cuttings, that would have been forensic information. He. Would have certainly told us. Unquote. Interestingly, Malloy also indicated that the wounds on Hetrick appeared to be surgical, but Broderick never disclosed, disclosed Malloy's over 250 page report. Dr. Warren James, a prominent Fort Collins OBGYN, indicated that the perpetrator would not have been able to cut uh, Miss Hetrick's in the way that he did if her jeans were pulled up above her knees as demonstrated by the crime scene photos during the surgical procedure. Miss Hetrick would have been positioned in a major frog leg position during the surgical procedure. Based on the surgical precision of the excision, a general physician would not have been able to conduct this procedure. In fact, most surgeons would not be able to perform this type of procedure given the precision of the cut I find it highly unlikely that any 15 year old could perform this precise surgical procedure given the advanced anatomical knowledge required and the skill necessary to excise the skin tissue uh, that was described and most surgeons cannot perform this procedure unquote in addition master's defense team indicated the police did not look hard enough into hammond's background which included secret credit cards a possible fake name and a denver residence where hammond tapes taped sexual encounters with another woman hammond was arrested for illegal taping but was com- but he committed suicide before masters was convicted defense attorneys argued that hammond was never really investigated because he was a social acquaintance of lead prosecutor terry gilmore Prosecutor Gilmore initially denied the claim but later indicated that he was indeed a social acquaintance of Dr. Hammond. Prosecutor Gilmore and Dr. Hammond had known been known to go out together and socialize. The authors comment on Dr. Hammond not to imply that he was the killer but rather to indicate that the arguments used by the police and the prosecution against Timothy applied equally or more to to Dr. Hammond in terms of investigating him as a possible suspect especially with the belief that the murder was a sexual homicide. Yet prosecutor Blair argued, who else could it possibly be? Nobody else had a motive, nobody else had the opportunity, nobody else had the weapon. It wasn't the fact that he had these drawings, but the number of sheer but the number, the sheer number we found, she said. What we needed to do is demonstrate that this wasn't just a passing fancy of this kid. This was a complete obsession with death, specifically the death of a woman, and tried to draw parallels between the drawings and our crime scene. We're talking about fantasy that becomes obsessive, unquote. During the trial, the prosecution argued that Timothy's familiarity with the area that the body was found in his love for knives that linked him to the crime it is apparent that the prosecution was not interested in considering other suspects as possible culprits, especially when Dr. Hammond had his own links to the crime, familiarity with the area, an obsession with women's private areas, and the interest in sexual deviance, ownership of surgical tools that could be used to kill and mutilate, the skills to perform the type of cuts observed by other doctors, as well as the opportunity to commit the crime. Prosecutor Gilmore stated, I had absolutely no reason to believe that he, referring to Hammond, was involved in any way with Petri, Peggy Hetrick's murder. It just never occurred to us, unquote. Prosecutor Blair indicated that, quote, Dr. Hammond wasn't even a blip on the screen. No one thought of him. No one talked of him. The crimes that he apparently perpetrated are so much different than the Peggy Hetrick homicide, unquote. However, Officer Jack Taylor... Disputed Blair's comments, indicating that Hammond was, and his possibility as a, suspe, as a suspect was common knowledge. In addition, Broderick stated that there was no reason to investigate Hammond for Hetrick's murder. Where is the violence? Show me the pattern of violence. We searched Hammond's entire house, and there was nothing to link him to Hetrick's murder. Unquote. The specific, the special prosecutor reviewing the case indicated that there was no evidence. Tying Dr. Hammond to the murder because there was no evidence of blood, blood splatter, DNA, fingerprints, hair fibers, confessions, or persons to whom Hammond confessed the crime. Who destroyed Hammond's videotapes and why? Quote, I had a lot to do with it, unquote Broderick says. Quote, it was an ethical decision. Should we re victimize all those women by telling them they are victims? So it really was an effort to protect them, to preserve victims' rights. Unquote. After viewing several of the videotapes, Offer Mickelson started making connections. The doctor's close proximity to the Hedrick crime scene and his obsessions with women's genitalia and breasts. He told Detective Tony Sanchez that Hammond should be investigated for Hedrick's murder. In August 1995, investigators had slated for destruction every piece of evidence they seized from Hammond. Don't do it, save the evidence, Offer Mickelson Michelson recalls telling Sanchez about after he heard about the plan knowing that they had reviewed only a small portion of the tapes uh, Michelson wanted to see if Hetrick may have appeared in any of the tapes but he testified that at one point he was threatened uh, with the loss of his job if he continued to pursue the Hammond evidence issue Sanchez, without elaborating, said that there were legal issues behind the destruction even though Sanchez indicated Hammond should be investigated. The seized evidence burned for approximately eight and a half hours according to August 15, 1995 report by Sanchez. Detective Krenning could not believe they burned every piece of evidence stating, I can't recall one other case where the evidence was taken to a landfill mashed up with a grater and then burned. I can't think of one either. Nine weeks after Hammond's possessions were destroyed, Broderick phoned forensic psychologist Reed Malloy to have him study Master's artwork. Also, newly discovered records not disclosed to the defense showed that a witness reported seeing a man running in shorts expose himself near where Hetrick's body was found. The woman who saw the man said he fit Hammond's description and was seen going in a nearby house. Prosecutors and police stated in Master's trial that Hetrick's killer could get sexual satisfaction from passing near where he posed her body. Tom Bevel, a 1999 prosecution witness and blood spatter expert, told jurors he believed Hetrick was killed at Landings Drive and was dragged or carried to the spot where she was found by bicyclists the next day. Uh, Bevel later stated the police failed to provide him a litany of items that he had now seen that led him to believe Hedrick was killed somewhere else and driven to Landing drive before being dragged to where she was found bevel was not aware of Hedrick's clothing until August 2005 when he got a call from Barry Getz another forensic expert who headed a Colorado bureau headed a Colorado Bureau of Investigation crime lab from 1999 to 2004 who stated He was never given the physical evidence until I took it to him. Bevel added that Getz also provided photos and reports he had not seen. I was never aware of all those were available. Bevel said he had never experienced a miscommunication of this level in more than 35 years of testifying as an expert. Also, a defense expert recently identified a dozen tracks running alongside the blood drag trail leading to Hedrick's body as prints from Tom McCann manufactured shoes not worn by masters. Yet Broderick's testimony trial alluded to only one Tom McCann print, Tom McCann being the style of shoe, and discounted the chance it was tied to the killing. Moreover, Masters' new defense counsel discovered that the FBI had made high-quality casts of footprints in the drag trail, as it was called, leading to the spot where Hedrick's body was found. The prints did not belong to Masters, nor was the defense notified of the FBI results. So here we are at the opinion of forensic psychologist Dr. Reed Malloy. Honorably discharged in 1998 after serving eight years in the Navy, Timothy Masters moved to California, bought a house in the desert town of Ridgecrest and began work as an aircraft structural mechanic. Detective Broderick was less convinced of Masters' innocence even after his colleagues and the FBI indicated that they believed Timothy was innocent. Broderick sought the opinion of forensic psychologist Dr. Reed Malloy, a member of the American Board of Professional Psychology. Dr. Malloy received details of the case along with more than 2,000 of Masters' drawings, stories, crime scene, videotapes, Broderick's interpretation of Masters' drawings, police interviews with Masters, photographs, maps, and transcripts in order to see if there was a relationship between Masters and the murder. Malloy would eventually conclude from Masters' drawings and stories that Masters fit the profile of a killer because he was a loner, he came from an isolated or deprived background, he often had violent fantasies and harbored hidden hostility toward authorities and women. However, not turned over to the defense were Broderick's own interpretations of Masters' artwork that filled dozens of pages that were dated long before Malloy joined the prosecution's efforts. July 24, 1998, Detective Broderick updated Prosecutor Gilmore and Blair on the status of Malloy's work. And in his letter, Broderick wrote that he sent Malloy a draft of Masters' arrest warrant and was waiting for his, quote, approval, unquote. Malloy was so convinced that Timothy was the culprit that he sent a pretrial letter to then Larimer County D.A. Stewart, Meverin, in which he hoped the work of superb professionals, that's in quotes, Gilmore and Blair, will result in successful prosecution. Besides the inclusion of Dr. Malloy as a prosecution witness, there was no new evidence to link Timothy to the murder. By this time, Timothy's appearance as an adult helped the prosecution's cause he had grown into an imposing figure and looked capable of committing the crime as contrasted to a skinny 15-year-old adolescent. Malloy stated, In my 18 years of doing this kind of work, I have never seen such voluminous productions by a suspect in a sexual homicide. That tells us he was preoccupied with sexual violence, violence, sexually sadistic images, images of domination and degradation of women, and he was also fascinated by knives, Malloy further stated. After spending six months on the case, I felt I understood the motivations for this homicide and that I had become convinced that Timothy Masters was the individual who committed this homicide. And more of the quote, young Timothy killed Hetrick and by doing so had symbolically killed his own mother. A classic case of displaced sexual matricide brought on by feelings of abandonment. Of course it was. In court, the prosecution bombarded the jury with Masters' violent pictures that were shown on a large video monitor. Malloy pointed out features of the drawings that he testified showed a pairing of sex and violence, which was evidence of uh, pecurism, the sadistic pleasure derived from stabbing. He also claimed that Masters was interested in the degradation of women and fascinated with weapons and death. Although Malloy was barred from giving his opinion about whether or not he believed Masters's pictures and stories implicated him in Hetrick's murder or that Hetrix's murder or that his productions reflected his belief that it was a displaced matricide. Malloy drew a very clear connection between the circumstances of her death and Masters' artwork as a motive for the homicide. He testified about the characteristics of a sexual homicide and went into detail about how Masters' productions could be considered a, quote, fantasy rehearsal, unquote, especially a doodle on Masters' math homework of a knife-wielding Hand, cutting a diamond shape that Malloy interpreted as a vagina, yes, which and he's got a quote which may have been a rehearsal of the genital mutilation, unquote. According to Malloy, because some of Tim's drawings were stabbings, dragging, and so on, they were logically relevant to the defendant's motive, intent, and plan to commit the crime. The psychologist defined a sexual homicide as one in which there is, quote, primary sexual activity usually involving semen or ejaculation, unquote. Yet despite labeling this a sexual homicide, there was no semen found in or on or near the body. He showed how specific pictures could be interpreted interpreted to reflect the crime. Several showed, quote, blitz attacks, unquote, depicted stabbings that Malloy interpreted as sexual in nature and depicted women as murder victims. He opined that Timothy's retreat into a fantasy world combined to create a boiling kettle of latent violence just waiting to erupt. Quote, A retreat into such a compensatory, narcissistic fantasy world replete with sexuality and violence works for a while but at great cost. The unexpressed rage continues. Depression may ensue. And anger toward women as, as sources of both pain and in terms of abandonment and erotic stimulation builds equally prejudicial was Molloy's interpretation of a picture masters drew the day after he saw Hetrick's body depicted one figure dragging another which was apparently wounded or dead from behind the wounded figure was riddled with arrows and blood seemed to flow from its back entirely discounting the presence of the arrows which had nothing to do with the murder, malloy wrote in his report that this picture represented the crime as it actually happened quote this is not a drawing of a crime scene as t- seen by timothy masters on the morning of february 11th as he went to school this is an accurate and vivid drawing of the homicide as it is occurring it is unlikely that tim masters could have inferred such criminal behavior by just viewing the corpse unless he was an experienced forensic investigator, it is much more likely, in my opinion, that he was drawing the crime to rekindle his memory of the sexual homicide he committed the day before. Molloy stated, "...sexual homicide represents the solution, particularly in the form it took in this case. If I kill a woman, she cannot abandon me. If I desexualize her, genital mutilation... She cannot stimulate me, unquote. And then more of the quote, These are not conscious thoughts for Tim Masters, but likely represent the unconscious beliefs that drove his behavior on the night of February 11, 1987, when he killed and sexually mutilated Peggy Hedrick, a victim of choice and opportunity. Miss Hedrick represented all women to Tim Masters, unquote. Malloy indicated that either a conflict with a woman in authority or grief over the death of a loved one triggered his murderous outburst. According to Malloy, quote, a trigger mechanism or a precipitating event is a particular occurrence in the life of the perpetrator which causes him to act out his fantasies in the real world. Unquote. Dr. Malloy testified that such an event could be conflict with one's spouse or girlfriend, grief over the death of a loved one. Or conflict with women of authority in a school or employment setting. In this case, Molloy stated that Timothy's trigger mechanism, which was the catalyst for Timothy to kill, consisted of the argument he had with a female teacher at school about, about a month prior to the murder. The argument ensued between the female teacher and Timothy because the teacher took away a military manual he possessed. Now we go on to the next stage in this, retired FBI agent Roy Hazelwood's analysis. The crux of Masters' position during the post-conviction process was that Detective Broderick and prosecutors Gilmore and Blair withheld information from the defense lawyers that could have been used to contradict their case that Masters was a killer. Specially appointed prosecutors agreed that the original prosecutors violated pretrial discovery rules. It was during the review of the violation of pretrial discovery rules that the defense learned that Roy Hazelwood was a retired special agent with the FBI who specialized in a, as an FBI profiler and also had published research on the specific types of crime in question. I met Roy Hazelwood. Uh, on a couple different occasions and he as a, he really uh, uh, he was uh, a very interesting and a, uh, could be a very entertaining speaker as well he passed away in 2016 but he had quite a career as uh, an FBI agent and speaker and writer so I think that's what really intrigued me uh, about this particular article that we heard a little bit of Roy Hazelwood's opinion uh, in this. So the article said, moreover, it was learned that Hazelwood's opinion contradicted the direction the investigation took. The theory of the prosecution and testimony of the forensic psychologist who was the main prosecution witness. Specifically among the material not disclosed that could have then were notes Broderick took after a conversation with Hazelwood, as well as fax memos from Hazelwood to Broderick. Hazelwood told Broderick that the tying the pictures to the crime, since none of them reflected what happened, was overreaching. Hazelwood eventually withdrew from the case after he had concerns over the prosecutor's trial strategy and the psychological theories to be used at trial. He also told Broderick that, quote, fantasy is not a motive, unquote, contradicting one of the pillars of Malloy's testimony. Hazelwood's opinion is crucial in understanding why Broderick and the police department did not employ Hazelwood or a profiler from the FBI to develop a profile, but instead used the services of a forensic psychologist. The differences between FBI profiles and forensic psychologists. And, uh, and the forensic psychologist hired for the Hettrick investigation cannot be overstated and the following quote is instructive. Quote, the difference is really a matter of the FBI being more oriented toward investigative experience than academic psychologists are, unquote, said retired FBI agent McCrary. The investigative aspects of and differentiation between disciplines that mccrary refers to includes trained and experienced law enforcement officers who understand practices and procedures of a criminal investigation interview interrogation search and seizure reviewing police reports analysis of intelligence from both physical and witness evidence evidentiary considerations and how they impact courtroom testimony and forensic laboratory reports academic forensic psychologists focus more on the offender class rather than attempting to solve an individual case. Academic forensic psychologists are more apt to look at research of those who have already been caught analyzing their characteristics and searching for patterns involving how they think, personality traits, and psychological slash social data. The study of the available record support observations of McCrary in that at some point Molloy believed that academic research on sexual homicide could replace solid law enforcement investigation protocol as evidence. The authors acknowledge that forensic psychologists can be involved in many different ways of an investigation however one of the most overrated concepts of their work is criminal profiling and this is where the investigation and the prosecution of Timothy Masters strayed. Even University of Washington criminal justice professor George Blau, B-L-A-U, considered the hidden Hazelwood commentary criticizing Malloy's theories particularly troublesome, stating that, quote, Hazelwood destroys the argument of psychological validity, unquote, when Malloy attempts to link the crime scene to Masters' drawings. In addition to the problems associated with the building of psychological profile that would ha- have to either ignore or counter the opinions of hazelwood hazelwood stated in a 1997 memo that hedrick's death was a crime of opportunity contrary to the prosecution's theory that master snuck out of his trailer home stalked peggy, peggy and killed and mutilated her without leaving a shred of evidence The court transcripts make it clear that Hazelwood never testified that each of his cautions were rejected by the investigators, the prosecution, and the forensic psychologist. Roy Hazelwood's opinion about the relevance of Masters' drawings to the crime directly contradicted Malloy's eventual testimony, but the conclusion of Hazelwood's report on the case were never introduced during the 1999 trial or disclosed to the defense. Master's attorney, Fisher, stated, We would have called Hazelwood as fast as we could have called him. We've got it backed up by the leading expert in the world. These guys hid it from us. The formidable obstacle before the forensic psychologist is described by two veteran FBI agents who pioneered the Bureau Psychological Profiling Program. In the early 1970s, Howard Teton and Patrick Mullaney developed the modern investigative approach to for the Behavioral Science Unit, which helps trainees to solve crimes by studying the offender, his or her behavior, and the motivation behind it. Tayton stated, people get the wrong idea of what profiling is. It's not a psychic thing. You don't pick out the perpetrator with a profile, not the individual. You pick out a type of personality. Absent physical evidence, Teton and Mullaney said it would be a mistake to rely on the analysis alone. On that analysis alone to build a case. Mullaney stated that, quote, we never intended that it would be the sole evidence that would move the case forward. We always intended that it would be a technique to ferret out a suspect. The only thing that should be in court is exact evidence, hair, fiber, DNA. Even if a guy confesses, These are the things that need to be put in place. Mullaney's comment on the evidentiary aspects of profiling supports McCrary's observation that the FBI is oriented toward the investigative experience where evidence is still necessary for opinions of culpability to withstand legal scrutiny. The position of McCrary, Teton, and Mullaney is further supported in an article titled The Academic and Practitioner. Pragmatist's view of offender profiling, Allison and Goodwill, 2004. Using personality traits as the main foundation for a psychological profile that masquerades as criminal investigative analysis is of significant concern to professionals in the field. Quote While it is acceptable to create a profile as an investigative tool, it is not acceptable to focus investigations on the presumption that the profile is wholly accurate. Especially when the consequences of such action might have a significant detrimental effect on the individual and/or an investigation. Unquote. It is necessary to quote "distinguish between information that directs an investigation and information that proves guilt, arguing that while offender profiles have been helpful in police investigations, extending their use to provide evidence is guilt. Uh, evidence of guilt is dangerous. Unquote. Moreover, as important as profiling is in terms of solving difficult cases, the reality is that professionals in the field should be aware that to date the empirical evidence does not support the scientific validity of profilers' predictive abilities from crime scene evidence. The authors acknowledge that profilers provide services in addition to predictions about offender characteristics. However, this is arguably the most frequently requested type of service and the most important tasks that they perform because the profilers' belief about the type of person who committed the crime influences all all subsequent types of profiling advice. Analysis of Dr. Malloy's Opinion There are several problems in the way Malloy was employed in this case. Although forensic psychologists may conduct research on criminal profiling, the fact does not make them a profiler. The forensic psychologists who are profilers have had training as profilers and incorporate far more than personality traits into their analysis. Regardless of the lack of evidence linking Timothy to the case, in the opinion of Hazelwood, Molloy continues to push his own reverse engineered psychological profile. That's what they call it. reversed engineered psychological profile matching masters to the murder. This reverse profiling exists when one first determines who they want the suspect to be and then continues to add characteristics to that individual of the type of person who would commit such a crime by the type of evidence that is collected. In this case, drawings and narratives. Furthermore, Malloy did not reveal to the court that hazelwood did not agree with this opinion even though during malloy's testimony he cites hazelwood's scholarship as scholarship he would have relied upon malloy never employed any psychological tests to derive the assumptions of personality traits and was left to derive the assumptions of masters's personality traits from his interpretation of masters's drawings knife collections and pornographic magazines The authors believe that a serious ethical issue develops when a forensic psychologist offers a reason for the arrest warrant, assists in drafting the arrest warrant, and testifies on behalf of the prosecution as an expert in the same case he helped build. Criminal investigative analysis is employed as a specific method to analyze crimes and develop a hypothesis about the characteristics of the person who might have committed such a crime practitioners of the field do not contend that such an analysis can identify the individual or individuals who committed the offense quote in some ways profiling is really still as much an art as a science unquote says psychologist Harvey Schlossberg uh, former director of psychological services for the New York Police Department we as psychologists do look at database sets of known criminal groups that indeed does assist in completing analysis of specific criminal behavior. But such analysis is very different from simply guessing who did it, unquote. There because he violates his own forensic psychological protocol. For example, Malloy's own scholarship emphasizes a protocol that in addition to the psychological testing as mentioned above, competent and thorough completion of the clinical interview and the gathering of independent historical data are critically important in arriving at a reliable, valid understanding of the individual. Malloy never interviewed Timothy, thus relying on speculation as to what the drawing and narrative signified. Because Malloy was not employed as a neutral party that would have been loyal to the court, there would have been no reason to subject Timothy to an evaluation by Malloy when Malloy already determined that Timothy was the culprit. According to ethical I- guidelines for forensic psychologists, forensic psychologists realize that their public role as an expert to the court confers upon them a special responsibility for fairness and accuracy in the public statements in their public statements. It is incorrect to opine that fantasy is equivalent to motive when the forensic psychologist does not know the purpose or intent of the fantasy. Having fantasy is not synonymous with the intent to fulfill or perform those fantasies. One only needs to observe all the graphic horror films and novels available to the public. The behavioral science approach mandates that a mental health professional sticks to behavior analysis and never testifies or tries to project psychological theories onto the specifics of a given case. Thus, once a mental health professional abandons this approach as well, the prejudice to a suspect can be insurmountable. Given that one of the authors is a clinical psychologist and has spent the last 20 years working in the criminal justice system providing forensic psychological analysis, the point authoritatively may be made that once the mental health professional begins to champion a cause or a theory as Malloy espoused, either for or against the individual before the court, the objective analysis owed to the court is lost. In fact, according to the American Psychological Association, a forensic psychologist does not take a side. His or her job is to translate psychological terminology in such a way that is acceptable to the legal system. The reader should be aware that the fact of the forensic psychologist is testifying for the defense of the prosecution. That does not mean they are taking sides. The forensic psychologist's loyalty is to the court. Furthermore, what is interesting is that even Malloy indicated during his testimony that the research on sexual homicide was scant. Malloy testified that current scientific journals have reported that the relationship between sexual fantasies and sexual homicides is tentative and opined that no conclusions can be drawn linking fantasies to conduct. Indeed, the inconclusive nature of this research is apparent when one of the two studies relied upon from the prosecution's expert is also relied upon for the proposition that quote normal people unquote that is persons who do not commit criminal behavior also engage in deviant sexual fantasies if both groups do engage in sadistic sexual fantasies there is no one causative factor that explains why some act out their fantasies and others do not Surveys measuring sadistic fantasies make it clear that it is extremely common for the vast majority of it does not lead uh, to sexual offending. As to rehearsed sadistic fantasy, sadistic situations tend to be rehearsed many times in fantasy and at times are tried out in real life over a number of years. There's no proof of rehearsal through Malloy's testimony, considering that Malloy never interviewed Timothy to validate his conclusion. Moreover, the defense did call a prominent forensic psychologist, Dr. John Yule, Y-U-I-L-L-E, who stated that the drawings meant nothing because research in sexual homicide is relatively new. Yule does not believe that a correlation necessarily exists between fantasy and homicide. There is room for differing interpretations of the same evidence. In his testimony regarding the current state of research on the relationship between fantasy and sexual homicide, Yule stated the research is flawed. In addition, he indicated that it is difficult to generalize about the link between fantasy and sexual homicide because the sample size in the research is small. Furthermore, the research on how frequently normal people engage in sexual fantasies and who do not commit sex crimes is inadequate. The research on sexual homicide and its purported application to masters is simply incorrect. For example, research indicated that those who engage in in sexual murder, tended to be isolated and engage in antisocial behavior. There is a relationship between sexual abuse in childhood and mutilation of murder victims. Sexual abuse murderers are likely to mutilate their victims than the, than, those who offending, than those offenders who are not sexually abused. And they give a, a 67 versus 44 percent. We also see a positive relationship. Between adolescent sexual victimization and mutilation of murder victims, and they give us 78 versus 42%. Furthermore, early fantasies often give rise to behavior trials that are precursors to criminal behavior. Lastly, what is most revealing is a study that found the frequency of deviant sexual fantasies in control groups representing normals tended to be higher than sex offenders. In the Masters case, we do not observe evidence of isolation, early tryout behaviors, or abuse. What is amazing is that Malloy relied on the very research that showed that someone like Timothy would be the least likely candidate to commit sexual murder to justify the belief that Timothy did, in fact, commit sexual murder. It is incorrect to assume that fantasy is a rehearsal to act out when it may serve as a number of other purposes for the individual, such as wish fulfillment, curiosity, or alleviation of sexual frustration. Given that there is no certain behavioral indicators to exclusively confirm characteristics in sadistic sexual fantasy, fantasy does not appear to be associated toward a type of crime. In addition to the problematic position that drawings represent sadistic sexual fantasy, Malloy takes the position that the drawings represent an illustration of displaced matricide, indicating that he killed Petra. Peggy Hetrick because Peggy represented Timothy's deceased mother. The authors went to some length to gather research that would attempt to justify Malloy's position that Timothy's action were a form of displaced matricide. The authors located what we believe to be the only study available prior to the trial titled Sexual Homicide by Adolescents of which Malloy had, would have been familiar. The study regards adolescents who commit sexual homicide it was based on the possibility that at least one of the, th- the three cases of adolescent sexual homicide may have represented the adolescent's dipla- displaced rage onto a female victim. Rage caused by the mother's mm-hmm. threats of separation through suicide. It is interesting to contrast Malloy's view on sexual homicide with that with what retired FBI profiler John Douglas states in his book The Mind Hunter* 1995 Douglas describes a sexual homicide where the victim was found badly beaten. Her nipples had been cut off and placed on her chest and there were bite marks on her legs lacerations on her body. She was spread eagle and tied with her belt and nylons and had an umbrella and pen uh, placed in her vagina. One of the suspects was a 15 year old the old boy who had found the victim's wallet, however, Douglas dismissed the boy as a suspect because the sexual fantasy that had pertained to this killer would have taken years to develop however Doug- Douglas goes on to comment about this particular case after the killer had be- been apprehended, candidly stating that acting out on fantasies on to harm others is a crime but that in themselves bizarre and deranged fantasies are not a crime douglas's insight supports Hazelwood's commentary that fantasy is not a necessarily motive and mcculloch's et al's 1983 research that sadistic situations tend to be rehearsed many times in fantasy and at times tried out in real life over a number of years Moreover, one year after Timothy was found guilty, Malloy published an article titled The Nature and Dynamics of Sexual Homicide in Integrated Review in 2000, where he, on several occasions, mentioned Timothy Masters' as a case of study of sexual homicide. What is interesting about the article is he describes characteristics that are common in sexual homicide and cites risk factors that are associated with displaced matricide that would be attributed, attributable to masters. Namely, we've got a list here. One, a history of mistreatment of women or fantasies of assaulting women. Two, fetishism for female underclothing and destruction of female clothes. Three, expression of hatred, contempt, or fear of women. Four, confusion of sexual identity. The authors could not find any behavioral evidence to support the inclusion of the above criteria to the master's case. Malloy's article attempts to show that Masters would have fulfilled the sexual criteria for the motivation model of sexual homicide as developed by Burgess, Ressler, Douglas, and McCormick, and elaborated upon Ressler in their book, Sexual Homicide, 1998, elaborated upon by Ressler in the book, Sexual Homicide. But the author's next search for evidence to support this theory proved to be unsuccessful. The authors could not find any evidence revealed by the police or Malloy that the criteria outlined in the sexual homicide model applied to Timothy. Such evidence include an effective social environment, formative traumatic events in their childhood such as abuse, personality traits such as chronic lying, stealing, cruelty, and destroying property, cognition processes entailing negativity and desire to control and dominate others. Hyperarousal consistent with early trauma and hyperarousal consistent with psychopathy. Antisocial acts representing a displacement of aggression. And feedback filter learning where practice makes the crime more closely fit the perfect fantasy. The lawyer is without question expert on narcissism and psychopathic personality traits having published many peer review articles and either authored or edited many books dealing in part or in whole on the topic. Thus, when Malloy stated that virtually all sexual homicide perpetrators evidenced narcissistic and psychopathic personality traits, these authors were troubled as the traits are not clearly evident in the master's documents. In a study titled Characteristics of Sexual Homicides Committed by Psychopathic or Nonpsychopathic Offenders, the author the authors offer empirical evidence that is at odds with Malloy's findings that both psychopathic and nonpsychopathic persons engaged in sexual homicide. The authors found that about eighty-two percent of the psychopathic offenders are more likely to engage in sadistic violence during the sexual homicide as opposed to 52% of the non-psychopathic offenders. Furthermore, the authors of the study indicated that psychopathic killers more likely tended to kill for thrill and lacked empathy, remorse, while non-psychopathic killers murder because of negative emotions, rage, or anger. By deduction, Malloy states that Timothy's drawings and narrative represent anger and rage toward women. The probability that Timothy is psychopathic, according to Porter's research, lessons which would cast doubt on Malloy's position that all sexual homicide perpetrators evidence narcissistic and psychopathic personality traits. In this article's conclusion, it states. Timothy's drawings and their perceived significance to the case proved to be the fatal flaw that produced a series of disasters, the first of which began with a distorted criminal investigation leading to the hiring of a forensic psychologist. The second disaster occurred when the psychologist engaged in projective analysis of the drawings without sound research to support his opinion. This mistake led to a third disaster, a prosecution that ignored all other evidentiary considerations, resulting in the conviction of an innocent person. The conviction created the fourth disaster, which represented the Colorado Supreme Court upholding the flawed testimony of a forensic psychologist while ignoring the most fundamental aspects of Daubert. Forensic analysis clearly has its benefits. As we have seen with Timothy being excluded as a, a source of DNA on the victim's clothing, leading to his freedom. However, we also observe that there is a precarious side to forensics that cannot be discounted, especially when we have lay persons who serve as jurors who can be swayed by an expert's testimony involving drawings. It is critical that if law enforcement does rely on profiling services or forensic psychologists to assist in their investigation, the evidentiary aspects of an investigation should not be ignored. As of 2008, Timothy appears to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. His attorneys have encouraged him to see a psychologist, but he is wary. Stating, "quote, a psychologist helped put me away," unquote. So that was Timothy Masters. After he'd uh, served over nine years in prison, he was released in January of 2008. Well, this case has a a, a lot of things to consider. One of which I would think is uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, that's probably the most prominent but there there is a problem with uh, people putting too much stock in this profiling idea and I, I had an interest in this uh for uh for a while but uh in reality I think I think when something has a lot of appeal to it and has an intriguing idea behind it and then you have experts like Reed Malloy, which I'm sure is really good at what he does, but it can it can influence people that that just because an idea is intriguing doesn't make it true or necessarily very useful. Uh, Criminal profiling is a very, uh, intriguing thing, but it is, it ought to be kept in its proper place. And that's really done by investigators. And, And a trial is about evidence, not just speculation about what might be. And when we, when we, uh, when we get away from what is hard evidence and just get on to speculation or or circular reasoning that's when we have some really tragic results that in this case could easily have been avoided This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on Podomatic.com or Anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.